You're listening to a sermon from our pastor, Brian Payne. We would love to have you worship God with us this Sunday at 1045 in the morning and at six o'clock in the evening as we make, nurture, and equip disciples of Jesus Christ in Auburn and throughout the world. Well, good morning. If you would turn your Bible to John chapter 10. Thank you, Adam, leading us in worship, the choir and orchestra every week, faithfully serving us in the Word of God. Thank you, Daria. Uh, She asked us to pray. There's a war. If you don't believe that, there was a celebrity this week on one of those pagan uh, television shows who said that people who are against abortion should be killed. And it's a culture of death that we're living in. And so her ministry is so very vital. Grateful for everyone who supports it. Continue to pray for women's hope. John chapter 10, we're going to be looking at verses 22 to 30. But to get at the heart of what Jesus is saying here, look with me in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. Let's pray. Father, we come to a passage that speaks to the believer's double security. And we thank you for a security that has been secured definitively by the objective work of our Lord Jesus Christ, his life, his substitutionary death, where he satisfied your wrath on our sin and his resurrection and ascension to your right hand. And Father, we pray now that you would incline our hearts towards Jesus' words this morning. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So in July 1994, I was working at John Croyle's Big Oak Ranch, a Christian home for neglected, orphaned, neglected children. And so... In July of that year, there was a, a kind of festival at a park where a choir and an orchestra was performing songs based on Independence Day. And so I took some of the kids there that evening. And on the last song of that presentation, the, the choir was singing Glory, Glory, Hallelujah. And they began to set off fireworks. Well, there were a couple of problems uh, from that. First of all, they had set up the fireworks too close to the choir. The second problem, hairspray is flammable. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm watching this next to my pastor, and, and as the fireworks came down, it came down on a woman's hair. <laughs> And her hair caught on fire. And her husband, who was playing the trombone, throws down his instrument, jumps up on the stage, 
She has been over at the waist with her hair on fire. She ended up being okay. But her husband starts to beat her hair with his music, his sheet music. You can't make this up. I found out later that she was okay, and I told my pastor, boy, she was on fire for the Lord. <laughs> but that's not even the most amazing thing. The most amazing thing about that incident is that this woman whose hair was on fire and was getting beat in the head by sheet music never quit singing. I kid you not. <laughs> I don't know if that was out of shock or just utter commitment. Well, I've thought about that for the last 29 years. And it really is a, a nice picture of what a true sheep's perseverance looks like. When the fire has fallen on you, you keep singing. That's a picture of the true sheep's perseverance. But it also exemplifies a promise, a promise of the sheep's perseverance. But given the weakness, given the dullness of the typical sheep, the question is, how can we hope to persevere with the struggles that we have with this world's three major sheep or, or, or wolves, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Those are the three major um, enemies of the sheep. How can we hope to persevere with those strong enemies? Well, our text helps answer that today. But before we really get into the heart of that, we see, first of all, a depiction of those who are shepherdless. You could boil it down to this, self-induced or even sin-induced unbelief. If you would look with me at verse 26, he's contrasting here the true sheep and those who are not his sheep. At that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter. John is good about double entendre. He's telling us it's winter, it's December, but it's also winter spiritually because Jesus has a growing number of enemies. But notice this language of Feast of Dedication. I asked my kids last night, where is the Feast of Dedication uh, seen in the Old Testament? They racked their brains. They couldn't remember, and I was grateful for that because you don't see it in the Old Testament. Uh, the Feast of Dedication was, was uh, a feast that was inaugurated in the intertestamental period. It, it was a time of celebration uh, to depict the time a man named Judas Maccabeus had delivered the Jews from the tyranny of a Greek king named Antiochus Epiphanes IV, who had overtaken Jerusalem and had desecrated the temple by offering swine, which was unclean, on the altar to Zeus. 
This was in 167 B.C. And in 164 B.C., uh, Judas Maccabeus and his followers and his family uh, defeated this king and, and they rededicated and consecrated the temple. And, and so the, the Jews began to institute this new feast, what is called here the, the Feast of Dedication. Today, Jews call it Hanukkah. Hanukkah. And so the reason this is here is primarily to serve as a time marker. Again, uh, it was winter. The Feast of Dedication takes place December 18th to December 25th. It could very well have been December 25th uh, that this is taking place. That would have been just a coincidence. Uh, but it was during that time period. Scholars tell us that the healing of the blind man in John 9 and the, the Good Shepherd Discourse in the first part of this chapter, took place about one month prior to what we're going to read here, starting in verse 22. But perhaps most importantly, there's only going to be one more Passover in the Gospel of John. And that will be the Passover where the good shepherd will lay down his, his life for his sheep. That's about three to four months out from our current passage, just to give you a time frame. Well, notice in verse 23, Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Now these these. Uh, Jews are clearly scoffers. The, the word there for gather, if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, that word is, it, it's like a gang gathering around someone uh, with great obstinance. And so these are shepherdless people because they don't follow the good shepherd. They are being contrasted with the good sheep, the faithful sheep. Uh, these are shepherdless people. Now we have seen that everyone has a shepherd in one sense. Psalm 49 verse 14 says, for those who are outside the faith, death is their shepherd. That's horrifying language, but it's true. Everything outside of Christ is dead. And so if Jesus is not your shepherd, ultimately death is your shepherd. But I call these people shepherdless people because they're not following the good shepherd, the true shepherd. And so shepherdless people like to blame others rather than taking responsibility. Uh, and here they are placing the blame on Jesus. They're placing the blame for their unbelief on Jesus. In other words, for the, from their perspective, he hasn't said enough. He hasn't been clear enough. He hasn't done enough. So why do shepherdless people refuse to take the blame? Because they don't have the shepherd's protection. And so they feel the need to self-protect. That's why we have a world full of, of victims today. Um, they're shepherdless. Uh, people who follow the shepherd don't have to self-protect because they have the protection of the shepherd, the covering of the shepherd. Well, that is verse 24. Notice in verse 25, though, Jesus answered them, I told you, 
and you do not believe. And so they're asking, how come you haven't been more clear? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. And Jesus said, I told you. Now, to be fair, Jesus had only explicitly said he was the Christ one time in the Gospel of John. And that was with a Samaritan woman, not with the Jews. So in John chapter 4, the Samaritan woman said to him, I know Messiah is coming. By the way, uh, the Samaritans only uh, believed that the first five books of the Bible were the scriptures. And even from those five books, she knew Messiah was coming from the, the, the Torah. And Jesus said, I who speak to you am he. You can't get any clearer than that. I am the Messiah. I am the Christ. And while the, Jesus had not explicitly said this to the Jews, and we'll speak to that in a moment, uh, he had clearly uh, communicated in so many words that he was the Christ. Uh, so for instance, in, in John chapter 1, uh, verse 51, uh, he told Nathanael, that he would see heaven open and angels ascending and descending on him, the Son of Man. In John chapter 3, he told Nicodemus uh, that the Son of Man had descended from heaven. In John chapter 5, after the healing of the paralytic, he told the Jews that the works that he did were works of the Father. And it says they sought to kill him because he was making himself equal with God. In John chapter 5, verses 22 to 26, Jesus told the Jews that God had entrusted all judgment to him and had granted him to have life in himself so that he could raise the dead and would be the agent of judgment. In John chapter 5, verses 39 to 46, Jesus had told the Jews that the, the scriptures bear witness about him. And that Moses wrote about him. In John chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, he told the Jews that he knew God and that he had been sent by God. In John 7, 37 and 38, he says, If you drink of this water, referring to himself, the living water, you will never thirst again. In chapter 8, verse 23, he claimed to be from above, not of this world. In John 8, verse 28, um, he said, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know I am. Remarkable language. When you've lifted him up, referring to the cross, you'll know that I am. In John 8, verse 52, he said that those who keep his word would not taste death. Or how about John 8, 58? He told the Jews, before Abraham was, I am. And then in John chapter 9, he received worship as the son of man from the man who had been formerly blind but had been healed by Jesus. And then in John chapter 10, in the, in the Good Shepherd Discourse, he said that the Father had given him all authority to lay down his life and to take it up Again, 
And then there's the I am discourses where he gives a predicate after saying I am, referring to uh, I am that I am Yahweh of Exodus 3. Uh, we have seen several of those in this, in this uh, gospel. So for instance, in John chapter 6, he said, I am the bread of life. In John chapter 8, he says, I am the light of the world. In John chapter 9, he says, I am the door to the Father. And then he said, I am the good shepherd. So even though Jesus had not explicitly said to the Jews that he was the Messiah, those who had ears to hear would have beheld him as Messiah. The reason he wasn't specific or, or explicit with the Jews is the same reason that you see with Jews today. Uh, they had this notion that the Messiah, when he came, would be merely a political deliverer. I just heard a, an audio this week on, from a man that I, I agree with most of his politics, Ben Shapiro, but he has no love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and he says, the Jews never looked for a Messiah who would bear their sins. He said, they look for a Messiah, and we look for a Messiah that will deliver us politically. Well, let me just tell you, the biggest problem we have is not politics. We need a Savior, and the Jews need a Savior who will deliver us from our sins by bearing our sins in his body on the cross. But Jesus was not explicit to them because he knew they would have misunderstood who he was when he shared that. And that's why... As we approach this section that clearly speaks to God's sovereignty in salvation, we need to remember the blame for their unbelief is on them. They are to blame for their unbelief. Indeed, his works accompanied his words. Notice in the second part of verse 25, the works that I do, not just the words, not just what I said about myself, but the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. So again, there's been so many works, but in the Gospel of John, for those of you that haven't been here, there are seven sign miracles. And a sign miracle is something that points beyond itself to that which is ultimate. The first sign miracle where he turned the water into wine, it occurred on the third day. It's remarkable. Uh, he's ushering in a new creation. And, and this turning the water into wine reflected that. The second sign miracle is when on the third day, he healed the official son. The third sign miracle in John chapter 5 occurred on the Sabbath. You think that was a coincidence? Sabbath uh, reflecting the rest, the shalom that God would provide. He healed the paralytic. And then the fourth sign miracle was when he fed the multitudes with just a few fishes and loaves, reflecting that he is the one who comes and, and feeds us with the bread of life by which we never hunger again. And then he walked on water demonstrating that he was Lord over creation, Lord over the storms. And then we saw in John chapter 9 another sign miracle when he healed the man who had been 
born blind, blind from birth, and he healed him like that. We're going to see the, the seventh sign miracle, and I believe seven is, is intentional there. It speaks of completion and perfection, totality. We're going to see the seventh sign miracle when he raises Lazarus from the dead in a few weeks. And so Jesus' words were clear, and his works were clear, demonstrating that he indeed was the Messiah. Evidence was not their problem. Evidence is not our problem today. The signs were very public, and therefore they were fully responsible for their unbelief. Nevertheless, there was also the factor of divine sovereignty in their salvation. Notice in verse 26, but you do not believe because you're not among my sheep. Now, I, know, I want you to note what he doesn't say here. He does not say, you're not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. Now, here's the question. Does that fit your theology? If not, we need to recognize, and I say we, we need to recognize not a single one of us has an inerrant theology. The Word of God's inerrant. The Word of God is inerrant and infallible, authoritative, sufficient, necessary, and clear. But our theology is in progress. It's being progressively sanctified, just like we are. And so when we come to the text, now having a theology is so important when you come to a text, it keeps you from veering off the rails. But you also need to recognize when you bring your theology to the text that the Word of God takes preeminence over your theology. And so the Word sanctifies your theology. And so the Word drives you back to your theology where it is now sanctified by the Word. And now you come back to the Word with a more sanctified theology. It's a, an interpretive spiral, if you will. So the question is, does that fit your theology? Because the reality is, if it doesn't, you must allow the Word to sanctify your theology. Now, this does not remove our responsibility. If we, if we fail to believe, it's not God's fault. It's our fault. Nor does it compromise the calling we have to make an invitation to everyone. So later in chapter 10, verses 37 and 38, Jesus will say, if I'm not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I in the Father. There Jesus is making an appeal to these shepherdless people. But the response of the true sheep was the opposite. And that brings us to the second point. Uh, we have seen uh, the depiction of the shepherdless, self-induced unbelief. Our second point we see in this passage is a description of the true sheep. Submission. That's the mark of a true sheep. Look with me in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice. And I know them, and they follow me. That's just a matter-of-fact statement. This is one of those great verses supporting effectual calling. Effectual calling is not us being puppets 
are robots. Uh, no one comes by compulsion. We come by desire, but our desires are changed. The effectual calling of God is the work of God's spirit whereby we are convinced of our sin and misery. All you have to do is go on the college campus and share the gospel, and you recognize to be convinced of your sin and misery is a miracle of grace in itself. Many of those students are not convinced of their sin and misery. They believe life is found in the party scene. So to be convinced of your sin and misery is a work of God's Spirit, whereby He enlightens our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renews our will and enables us in, and persuades us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to the gospel, in the gospel. So that we come not kicking and screaming, we come with gratitude and new faith. And those who are called have distinguishing marks, clear marks, just like if you go on a farm today, uh, cattle are branded oftentimes, um, and, and sheep were often branded. They, they said that, that shepherds would brand the sheep on the ear. Well, Christ's sheep are branded as well. The Puritans used to speak about Jesus, the shepherd, putting a double mark on his sheep, on their ear and on their foot. The mark on their ear is that they hear the shepherd. You see that in uh, verse 27. Notice, my sheep hear my voice. He's already driven that home throughout this gospel or this chapter. For instance, in chapter 3, I mean chapter 10, verse 3, the sheep hear his voice. Or verse 8, uh, the sheep did not listen to the thieves and robbers. Verse 16, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will listen to my voice. Hearing the shepherd is a mark of a sheep. It's a necessary mark of the sheep, that the sheep knows the shepherd. Now, here's the question. How do we hear his voice? We hear his voice today through the word of God. And so if there is a person who has no regard for the scriptures, they never open their Bible, you have to question, do they have the mark of a sheep? Jesus clearly says here, my sheep hear my voice. I'm not being legalistic here. I'm just repeating what he says. If we have no longing for the word, now you may just be a sheep that's sick. You, you, may, you, you may have some kind of uh, spiritual sickness that is eclipsing your, your hunger for the word. But the, the fact is, if you never open your Bible, it may be that you are not attuned to the voice of the shepherd. And notice in verse 27, the second part, and I know them. Again, he has emphasized that. Uh, verse 3 of chapter 10, the sheep hear his voice. He calls his sheep by name. He knows them. He knows our names. He knows our natures. He knows our needs. I know them. Reader's Digest, sometime back, ran a, a piece on a man who got arrested 
for stealing a sheep. The accuser said, that's my sheep that he stole. And the man said, no, it was my sheep. He ran away a few days ago, and I, I retrieved him back. Well, he was brought to court. The judge didn't know what to do. And so he put uh, the accuser out in the courtyard, and he said, I want you to call the sheep. And he called, and the sheep didn't respond. And then he put the man who had been accused out in the courtyard, and he called the sheep, and the sheep went running to the man who had been accused. And the, the judge ruled that sheep knows his owner, and he dismissed the case. The shepherd knows and the sheep knows. But the second mark on the sheep, in addition to the ear, the hearing, the second mark on the sheep is on the foot. It's what the Puritans would say. Notice in the last part of 27, and they follow me. And they follow me. The mark of a, of a sheep is they follow the shepherd. Again, we've seen this throughout John 10. When he has brought out all his own, he goes before them, and the sheep follow him, for they know his voice. How do we know we're sheep? We follow the shepherd. There, there's no area of our life that we sequestered off from him. We bring our time, our treasures, our talents, our sex lives our morals, our ethics. We bring everything under the care of the shepherd. The sheep follow the shepherd. Now that's not to say that sheep are perfect. We are still sinners. But one of the marks of a sheep is that he or she is notorious at repentance when he does sin. He is not, she is not marked by high-handed sin, presumptuous sin. Because he follows, she follows the shepherd. Hebrews 11 gives us virtually an entire chapter on what following the shepherd looks like by faith. And so, for instance, and the reason I think Hebrews 11 is there is to remind us that faith always bears fruit. Don't think you can have an intellectual faith and it not be transformative. Because the heart is deceitfully wicked. We are easy to deceive ourselves. So for instance, it says um, in, in Hebrews 11, give you just a few instances, Enoch heard and it pleased God. Uh, we see Noah heard and, and he built an ark. We see that Abraham heard and he laid his son Isaac on an altar. We see that Moses heard the voice of the shepherd and he considered the approach of Christ. That's remarkable, isn't it? That Moses recognized he was identifying with the sufferings of the one who would come. He considered the approach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. And then Hebrews 11 goes on and says, through faith they conquered kingdoms, Enforce justice, obtain promises, stop the mouths of lions, 
quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. This is what it means to follow Christ. You say, I can't even imagine doing that. If the time came for your faith to be tested like that, God would give you the grace to follow the shepherd because the sheep follow the shepherd. In other words, an distinguishing mark of a sheep is that they continue to sing when the fire has fallen on them. With that said, the sheep's perseverance is not the ground of their security. We'd be in a lot of hurt if it was. Because our perseverance and our obedience is not perfect. Verses 28 to 30 show us what is the ground of our security. A declaration by the shepherd for security. That's the final point. Look with me in verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. So Jesus is going to make three assertions in verse 28 and he's going to make three assertions in verse 29. Look with me in verse 28. I give them eternal life. He's already said that in John 10, 10. I have come that they may have life and have it more abundantly. They will never perish. That's a remarkable statement there. They will never perish. Uh, if, if that's not a truth that ensures security, I don't know what is. And no one will snatch them out of my hands. Not even the sheep. Not even the sheep. But then we see the third assertion, uh, the three assertions in verse 29. My father who has given them to me. Now that's a common phrase in John, for lack of time, I won't look into all of those, but in chapter 6, we already saw this. All that the Father gives me will come to me. So the Father gives the, the shepherd a, a people, a sheep, a, a, a flock of sheep. John 17, glorify your son that the son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Now, I didn't put that in there. The Holy Spirit put that in there through the, through the pen of the gospel or, or, or the apostle John. But the Father has given the Son a people. And that truth in itself is the ground of our security. And Jesus says, he's greater than all. The Father, through the Son and by the Spirit, created all things, which means he is all-powerful. There is nothing that can take away our salvation because the Father, who is the author of our salvation, is greater than any created things. And then notice, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hands. So the sheep are in two hands. We're in the hands of the shepherd, Jesus, and we're in the hands of the Father. Here is our security. If our security was dependent on our obedience, we would have already lost our salvation. If it was dependent on us, we would, we would have already lost our salvation, I can assure you. I want you to think of it this way. So this strong father is walking with his three-year-old three little girl, and they're walking down a, a, a road that's with heavy traffic, and there's a very narrow walking path. 
And there's two ways that the father can offer security in that dangerous environment to the daughter. He could first of all lean down and say, sweetheart, hold on tightly to my hand or you're going to get hit by a car. Or he could say, sweetheart, put your hand in my hand and I'm going to hold on to your hand and ensure that you will not be hurt. And so the father's strong hand holds on to the weaker grip of his little daughter. King David got that in Psalm 63, verse 8. Listen to this. My soul clings to you. Sometimes our clinging is pretty weak, isn't it? That's why the next part of that verse is really important. Your right hand upholds me. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Uh, There's an old Latin phrase, et tenio, et tenior, which means I hold, I am held. I hold, but I am held. That is balanced theology. I hold on by faith, but I am held. That phrase was popularized by Spurgeon. He made it the motto of his pastor's college. Et tenio, et tenior. Why not make that the motto? For our lives. We are held by two omnipotent hands. Two hands, but one purpose. That's verse 30. I and the Father are one. Now, this is not modalism where the Father becomes the Son who then becomes the Spirit. Notice the plural are. I and the Father are, not is. There are, there's a plural are here that speaks to the plurality in the Godhead. But the two are one in essence and power and glory. And they are united in an inseparable operation in saving the sheep. That's our security. Let me close with this anecdote from H.A. Ironsides. One day he preached on security, former pastor at Moody Church in Chicago. Lady came up to him afterwards and said, I didn't agree with your sermon about security. We don't have security. And so he read from this passage. Um, I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. And he asked her, do you believe these words? And she said, not as you interpret them. And he responded, I didn't interpret them. I just read them. (laughs) And she responded, I don't believe those words mean what you say they mean. And then he said, well, let me read the verse this way. Suppose Jesus said, I give them life for 20 years and they will never perish for 20 years. What would that mean? She said that would mean that uh, we have security for 20 years. He said, okay, now uh, let's say we said it this way. He gives life for 40 years and they will never perish for 40 years. What do you suppose that would mean? And she said, I suppose that would mean we, we would be safe for 40 years. He said, but that's not what he said. 
He said, eternity. I give them eternal life. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And that's the believer's security. Has it occurred to you that you will spend more time in eternity than you will here? I mean, that should be the blaring flash of the obvious. But we live every day as if we're going to spend eternity here. We will spend an infinite amount of time in eternity compared to our little brief time here on earth. Jesus Christ, the great shepherd, has secured eternity for every single person who would hear his voice. For every single purpose, a purpose, a per, per person <laughs> who would believe and who would follow. That's what the great shepherd has done. The good shepherd, the chief shepherd. Doesn't that provoke you to love, to faith, to exaltation, to joy? Why so downcast, oh my soul? We have a shepherd to put our hope in. And this passage is primarily for believers so that you would believe even more, that you would believe you have that kind of shepherd. But it's also a message for every unbeliever here. You don't have to remain shepherdless. I said this last week, you do not have to remain shepherdless. All you have to do is recognize I've been rejecting the voice of the good shepherd. I've been refusing to believe the good shepherd. So as Adam and the musicians come forward, we want to give you an opportunity to respond to the good shepherd this morning. All you have to do is humble yourself and say, the shepherdless kind of living that I've had for my whole life has ended up fruitless and it's left me in misery. And I want to do something about that today. I want to confess my sin. I want to believe in the good shepherd who laid down his life for me, a sinner, and was raised from the grave for my justification so that I might have the forgiveness of sins. Because I can't follow him perfectly. I can't obey God perfectly, but the Son of God did. He lived in my place. He died in my place. He was raised in my place. If you believe that, you can become a sheep today. So won't you come as we stand and as we sing? Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.